0: Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today, I'll be speaking with author Josh Levine, who has just released a new book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Hey, Josh, how's it going today? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. I was happy to to do this, to talk about this book, uh, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Um, To kind of get us going, I was really interested... With this character of Linda Taylor and I know you started writing about this back in 2013 for Slate and it's come on to be this you know book now as well as a podcast and I I was really interested how you came across the story and what made you want to start writing about it
1: I came across it in 2012 thanks to a colleague of mine I was editing a story of his about Mitt Romney this was a couple of days before the Romney-Obama election of 2012, which seems very long ago. Um, And uh, I was editing the story about Romney. It was right around when Romney was talking about how 47% of people would never uh, vote Republican because and they they would never pay taxes and that they were takers and leeches on the system, basically. And my colleague sent me a link to a story about Linda Taylor, um, and I had never heard of Taylor before this. I knew the term welfare queen, but did not know that the term was associated with a specific person. And so you know, this, this article, this first thing that I'd ever read about her, said that she was the biggest welfare cheat of all time. She drove a Cadillac. She wore fur coats. And I was fascinated both by her and, both, and by what was, uh, she was alleged to have done but also by the fact that I didn't know that she existed and that she had disappeared essentially from collective memory. And so I wanted to dig into both of those things. Why had she been forgotten and what was the truth? What had she actually done?
0: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's fascinating. The book itself, as well as the article and podcast, were all fascinating themselves. Um, I guess uh, people know that term welfare queen, but maybe they're not aware of the origin. Where, where does that term come from?
1: So the stereotype of essentially the undeserving poor has been around forever. It's not just an American thing. You know, you can go back thousands of years to find examples of it. Uh, In America, with welfare in particular, since the 1930s during the New Deal when FDR launched uh, Aid to Dependent Children, which later became Aid to Families with Dependent Children, From the inception of that program, there were allegations that people were getting benefits and money that they didn't deserve. What happened with Taylor in the 70s was the connection of this term, welfare queen, with this particular person. And the idea that there were people getting rich off of benefits, that there were people who were lazy, who were cheaters, and the taxpayer dollars were going to these people rather than to those who were truly needy and who were deserving, and also that the image of this person was um, the image of Taylor, that she was driving a Cadillac, and that she wore fur coats, and that she would drive the Cadillac literally to the public aid office.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting, and like you said, there's a historical um, way of people attaching themselves to these types of narratives, and it's not anything new. Why do you think this particular iteration of the myth or the stereotype took hold at the time that it did?
1: I think a couple of reasons. I think the economy was really bad in the mid-1970s. And, you know, when Ronald Reagan started talking about Linda Taylor when he ran for president in 1976, he found that the story was really effective on the campaign trail, that people, I think, his voters, his base, were looking for a figure or figures to blame for the bad economy, for the fact that inflation was going up. uh, And Taylor and Taylor-like individuals were easy scapegoats. These were vulnerable people who didn't have the platform to kind of fight back or speak for themselves in a way that, you know, the mass media, for instance, would listen to. And so – you know, it's, it's sort of similar to how undocumented immigrants get vil- villainized today that, you know, you take an individual outrageous example and say this means that this entire group of people is suspect. And not only are they suspect, they're to blame for all of the problems in your life. And that really caught on in that at that period in the mid 70s.
0: Yeah, I see that. And one of the aspects you go into in the book um, is this idea of Linda Taylor and her story having a much darker side that's not really talked about. And could you go into that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So welfare fraud was really the least of Taylor's crimes. When Reagan would talk about her on the campaign trail, he would say that she had a tax-free income from stealing government checks of $150,000 in a single year. That figure was really exaggerated. But what Reagan didn't say is that Taylor had also been accused of murder and kidnapping. And I think by alighting those parts from Taylor's story, by sanding off those edges, he kept the focus on welfare and on welfare fraud and made her seem at once like this kind of outrageous villain, but also kind of strangely typical that um, she was representative uh, of other people on welfare. And if the other allegations had been mentioned, the fact that she had been accused of murder and kidnapping, I think it would have been more clear to the people listening uh, in whatever audience it was, whether it was you know, newspaper readers or people at a polit- political rally, it would have been clear to them that there wasn't anything typical about Linda Taylor at all, and that she didn't represent anyone or anything but herself.
0: Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, you know, this depiction had a lot of real policy effects that we're still feeling today and still dealing with today. Um, Could you go into some of those?
1: Sure. So in Illinois, almost as soon as the Taylor story became big news, everyone who was receiving public aid in the state was treated with more suspicion. Checks were no longer mailed to recipients' homes. They had to go get them at check-cashing outlets. The idea of being there, oh, we can't trust welfare recipients, they're probably lying about where they live so that they can get um, you know, checks and multiple addresses like Taylor did. Also, what was formerly seen as administrative issues For instance, people not reporting outside income, babysitting income, or lawn mowing income, or anything like that. Stuff that was seen as, this is a matter for the agency to deal with. This was seen kind of post-Taylor as an issue for the criminal justice system and that should be dealt with with prison time. And that was not just in Illinois. This was consistent across the nation that prosecutions for welfare fraud went up. Mm -hmm. And then from a policy perspective, On a federal level, Reagan doesn't get elected in 1976 when he first talks about Taylor, but he continues talking about her in 1980 when he does win the presidency, and he also tells the story once he's in the Oval Office as part of an argument for why uh, federal programs that give direct aid to the poor should be cut. Um, And Reagan succeeds in passing a budget that has major cuts to food stamps and aid to families with Dependent children. He argues that these cuts will only affect cheaters, they will not affect the quote-unquote truly needy. In practice, that wasn't the case.
0: No, definitely. And that was also continued in the 90s with the Clinton administration, a Democratic administration that was pushed more to the right in this area, right?
1: Yeah, Clinton's campaign slogan um, that he wanted to end welfare as we know it was hugely popular and helped him get elected. And it was popular kind of across party lines and across demographic groups. I think that the reason it was so popular, one of the reasons, was that it was so nonspecific Mm -hmm. that different groups could interpret it in different ways. Uh, And that lack of specificity, I think, was intentional on Clinton's part. He didn't say necessarily how he wanted to end welfare, just he understood that welfare... Um, as a concept, had been so demonized that saying that you were against it was a effective political rhetoric. And then once Republicans took over Congress, um, there was this bipartisan push to enact welfare reform. And the reform that ends up getting passed does end welfare. Um, it replaces AFDC with temporary assistance for needy families, which as the name implies, turns welfare into temporary program, one where the pool of money is limited, where um, you know it's no longer a program where if you're poor and you're under a certain kind of income threshold, then the government is gonna provide the safety net for you. There are no more guarantees. Um, and again, I think you can see this line, this, this extension. Um, starting with with Reagan and even before, the idea that the problem isn't poverty, that that's not the thing we need to fix. It's poor people Mm. are the thing that we need to to fix.
0: Interesting. Um, You know, you've gotten to trace this story, this myth, and all the types of strategies for using it over the years, and you've you've been looking at this for years now and writing about it. Um, You see how this is made. Do you have any ideas about how a myth like this, if it comes up in our current day, can be combated or taken to task?
1: It's a great question because I do think it's a problem that endures just because of the power of storytelling and the utility of anecdotes Mm -hmm. and that people kind of assimilate an individual data point, even if it isn't representative, into their pre-existing belief systems, whether that's about welfare, poverty, race, immigration, anything like that. And so as journalists, I think it's really important for us to look at those individual stories and do two things. Number one, as I tried to do in this in this book, is to follow the story wherever it leads and to tell the truth, even if it's messy and complicated. Taylor was a criminal. She committed welfare fraud. I don't think that that means that everyone who receives welfare is a criminal. That's obviously not true and pernicious and, and vicious idea. Um, but kind of showing how that myth gets created is really uh, important. And then the second thing I would say is to keep presenting, even in the face of the, the storytelling and these anecdotes, the kind of larger population level facts. I mentioned undocumented immigrants before. If you look at immigrants on a population level, um, they commit crimes at a lower rate than non-immigrants. And I think that's incredibly important to keep foregrounding that statistic even when individual cases get presented to the American people as if they're representative.
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. Um, with With our remaining time, I kind of wanted to pivot a little bit. Uh, you've been writing at Slate since 2003? Yes. So you have kind of been along for the wild ride of Internet journalism coming to the forefront um, and just the journalistic landscape kind of changing so much. And I, I was really wondering what your experience has been like in that position and kind of viewing all these things and also if you have any thoughts about where journalism is going in the future.
1: So it's a great question. I've uh, been at Slate, as you mentioned, for 16 years, and the landscape has changed dramatically. Slate was started in 1996 as an opinion and analysis site on the Internet at a time when there was a real kind of deficit, a lack of that kind of material online, like really smart and sharp opinion and analysis. And now we're kind of flooded with uh, opinion and analysis. <laughs> and it seems like it's, it's hard to sift through it and, and know who to trust. And, and the metabolism is so much quicker now. We used to update the site, you know, back when I started about once a day, the homepage kind of turn it over and present new stories. And now we're doing it constantly. Every few minutes, and so the challenge today is, you know, breaking through the the clutter and making sure that folks are aware of and uh, you know seeing the work that we do when there's so much other stuff out there, and then also making sure that we're not being kind of led around, whether it's by the president or anyone else. You know, there's a risk of being too much in a reactive mode. You could fill, you know, the entire Internet (laughs) with just reactions to what other people are saying or doing. We want to be starting conversations, setting agendas rather than just kind of pinging, um, you know, uh, ideas in response to what other people are doing. And that's something that we have to be constantly vigilant about.
0: Yeah, again, really good thoughts on that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, to kind of finally close us close off, I have one question that I normally ask people, uh, which is, what are you reading right now? And also, w- what's on deck for you? Are there any projects on the horizon?
1: So as far as what's on the horizon, um, it's been six years <laughs> working on this book, and so I'm taking a little bit of a breather right now the podcast that i did for slate uh the queen uh which is based on the reporting of the book was something that i was really excited about doing and bringing that uh you know that that reporting to another medium and like being able to have listeners hear um from the people who are present Mm -hmm. at the creation of this myth and who knew linda taylor that was really important And so that's kind of going to be the prelude for me to other podcasting projects. I want to do more narrative journalism in audio. As far as what I'm reading, um, one thing that I read recently that had a really profound effect on me was an investigation that Jody Rosen did for the New York Times Magazine about a fire at the Universal backlot. I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with your story, but this was a huge fire that destroyed master tapes from this enormous number of titanically important artists, musicians. And so there's this kind of loss of this huge cultural legacy. And Universal, as, as Jody Rosen explains in this story, managed to hide this not only from the public, but from the artists themselves. And so this was, I think, journalism at its finest was to reveal this um, kind of this loss that a major corporation had tried to hide, but also kind of having the ability to explain why this was such an important cultural legacy, like what um, exactly master recordings are. And um, I I was just kind of in awe of all of the work that went into that. And it's, kind of showed the best of what journalism can do.
0: Awesome. Well, I I have that bookmark to read myself. I'm looking forward to it more now. Um, Well, Josh, thank you so much for spending some time with us.
1: Thank you for the conversation. I enjoyed it.
0: That was author and journalist Josh Levine, and his new book is entitled The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth, and it's out now. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH, 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. and again on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.